You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. As it is, we're not sure month to month if this is going to keep going. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics we don't have time to cover in our longer episodes, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. As a member, you could get a new episode from us as often as once a week. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. We know times are tough for everyone, and we appreciate your support. Ghosts. Disembodied talking baby heads. We've got it all. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So we are here today with friend of the pod, Liv Albert from Myths Baby. Hello, Liv. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. <laughs> so what are we doing today, you guys? Okay, what we're doing is it is spooky season, and we have found some rather dicey ancient world ghost stories. <laughs> dicey is a good word. <laughs> it's such a good word. And we're going to tell them to you. And I'm going to be real honest, guys. I am recording so late because I am in like the latest time zone of all three of us. So I have had some wine and I have read this ghost story that I have a lot of feels about. So I might be a little punchy. Yeah. So we're we're going to we're going to tell you some ghost stories today from ancient Rome. Yeah, they all take place in ancient Greece, though. Let's watch ourselves, Jenny. Well, from ancient Rome, but pretending they're in ancient Greece. (laughs) But they're told by someone who was living during Hadrian's time, who was using older sources. So ancient Greece and Rome, generally, it's a little dicey. But the book that we're drawing from is called Phlegon of Tralee's Book of Marvels. And this book is, it's just straight up the National Enquirer. Yeah. In like, in every way, in in all its problematic glory, in all its, I mean, at times entertaining when you're not dealing with one of the most horrifyingly problematic bits, it's got it all. I just want to say, just in case you don't know what the National Enquirer is, like other things like the National Enquirer are Ripley's Believe It or Not, or like P.T. Barnum and his circus, and I would say Maury Povich's TV show from the 90s and other things of that nature. 
So Liv, how did you discover this book? Because you were the one that introduced it to us. It's basically the fetishization. 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 Thank you. It's the fetishization. That was not right. Of, of, you know, just people who are, you know, quote unquote different. So it's deeply problematic in some ways. We we came to it for the ghost stories and found uh, some more troubling things. Regardless, to answer your question, Jenny, so I have this book. It's a source book on sort of all things supernatural in the classical world, witches, witchcraft, ghosts, necromancy, all the good stuff. Jen's story actually was was in that book as a, one of the ghost stories. And I don't know if I covered it on the show. I think I might have covered it in an episode at, like last spooky season. Basically, I just found this one and was like, oh my gosh, this guy's a whole book of it. This is wild. And so we all ordered it with the hopes that it was going to be a great source book. There is not that much actually in it, to be clear. There are three ghost stories and then some other really weird stuff that is, you know, 50-50. <laughs> and I want to give a shout out to that source book that you used. It's a Daniel Ogden book. It is such a good book, and he's just created a source book on werewolves in the ancient world. We're using it for our Ancient Werewolves in Greece and Rome episode, which is coming out this spooky season. So he's just so good at pulling together all those sources in the most reputable, interesting way. Not quite what Phlegon did, though. <laughs> and, the, and the translator, we, as we want to mention, the only full translation, it seems, of this work is from 1996, as is the commentary. So all of it is incredibly dated. When it comes to, you know, the way we talk about uh, other human beings. <laughs> yeah, so we were all really aware of that when, when we were looking through it. And again, it's kind of why we stuck to the ghost stories. Um, my ghost story has a lot of that <laughs> problematic bits that I'm going to, you know, cover it when it get, comes to it. But yeah, there's definitely some other things in there where it's a lot of sort of just like gaping at humanity in, you know, in, in a way that's like it's fetishizing and it's not ideal. Fetishizing? What? Where does the SH come into fetishizing? I think you I think you did it. I think you got it. <laughs> Thank you. It's fetish. <laughs> I can't do it when I need to. So like don't overthink it, you know. <laughs> anyway, you know, it's 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 problematic in that way. Um so we're, we've been very careful with what we're talking about today when it comes to this book. It's like the National Enquirer, which I, as a kid, remember standing in the, um, you know, in the checkout line at the grocery store. And the headlines would be like, sometimes it would be like, there's aliens. It'd be like about aliens or, you know, supernatural shit, too. I remember there was one that I used to have hanging up on my wall where the headline was Jen Jen the dog face girl. And it was actually just like a picture of a like girl or, you know, a child with the head of a pug dog just photoshopped onto her body. Oh, it wouldn't have been photoshopped then. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, photoshopped, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> like not actual photoshop because there was no photoshop, but like, you know, the equivalent of that back then. Like literal cut and paste. And there's definitely stuff like that in here. Like, I think there's one where a child is born with the head of, an, of Anubis. It would kind of run the gamut, but definitely one of the things that it did was, like, sensationalize somebody born with some kind of a medical condition. There's also, you know, there's a whole section on intersex people that is not dealt with well in the translation or, you know, in the original, obviously. Yeah, there's there's definitely some unfortunate terms used there, which we will not quote from we will not be using those terms there's also a whole section on girls giving birth i think it's six or seven years old that's not dealt with very well because like there's this whole astonishing girls develop that young and it's like no no that's not what happened no no that's not what we should be focusing on there yeah 
I would say if you're looking at this book and you're like, because we've talked about it and you've listened to these stories and you're like, wow, I want to find out more. Just be where we did cherry pick what we're telling you. And a lot of the stuff in there is not okay. And it's not, I mean, I always felt, even as like a kid, I didn't really like this sort of fetishization. I can't say it. The fetishization, which I've now said wrong and I don't care. Can't stop, won't stop fucking up that word. (laughs) I will not stop fucking it up because it is almost 1 a.m. here, guys. And that is why I love you because I'm here at 1 a.m. to talk about this. But anyway, it's this fetishizing of people. As a kid, it really always bothered me. But I always liked the supernatural element of it. I was like, tell me about the ghost story. So that that's what brought me here. So I wrote up this whole thing about who Fleegon of Tralees was and what the history of this book is. So Fleegon of Tralees was a freedman, which was a former enslaved person who had been released from slavery, but who still did not have rights of citizenship. And he lived around the early 100s AD. He was highly educated. He was a widely published writer. He was part of the household of the Emperor Hadrian. The place where he was from, Tralees, was in, I believe, what's now modern-day Turkey, and I think that that was part of Greece in Phlegon's time. The translation that we're using for this episode is the William Hansen translation. It's from the 90s. I would also say that since the 90s, no one has... This is like the definitive English translation we're working from. Right. I don't believe anyone else has translated this into English, so this is what we've got. Hansen tells us that Phlegon was an educated freedman close to the Emperor Hadrian. Close enough to have been allowed a peek into the emperor's personal cabinet of curiosities. According to the gossip at the time, Hadrian used to write up ridiculously fawning essays about himself and have them published under Phlegon's name to increase his renown. (laughs) Okay, I love that. I hope that's true. I love it. You know, it was part of the catty gossip. I don't know. I guess Phlegon must have been publishing this shit. And and everyone was like, yeah, sure, you published that, Phlegon. Phlegon's like, I wrote it! And they're like, yeah, Phlegon, we know you didn't write that. That's got Hadrian's stank on it. (laughs) So... Phlegon's most famous work is the Book of Marvels, which is what we're drawing from. And like we've said, this is basically the National Enquirer of its time. And we say that with absolutely no irony. And here is a quote from Hansen that describes basically what you get when you read this book. Quote, A dead girl carries on an affair. A father eats his own son. A maiden changes from female to male on her wedding day. A child is born with the head of the Egyptian god Anubis. A live centaur is captured. Girls in a certain city give birth at seven years of age. Bones of giant beings are discovered, and so on. And you can see where the problematic shit is there. (laughs) I do not have to point it out. And and I do want to say, too, like, as much as some of it is problematic, it is vindicating in certain ways. You just have to kind of look past the way it's phrased and certainly, like, the way it's treated in this translation, which is very old, again. Because, like, for instance, there is a story or there's, like, a reference and it's, like, two sentences not even it's one sentence and it's like this section on quote-unquote births from males basically the idea is it says quote a male homosexual gave birth and that because of the marvel the newborn infant was embalmed and is still preserved now what this probably is is that there was a couple that one of them was a trans man and he gave birth naturally they then embalmed the baby doesn't even say whether the baby lived or not, just was immediately embalmed, which is horrifying. It's an interesting thing because it is references of like obviously trans people that are handled poorly, but it's another, it is more sourcing on like the obvious fact that trans people have been around forever and intersex people and all of that. 
So it's it's an interesting thing to look at, like, beyond and past the problematic nature of some of it and be like, okay, cool. But it is also just, like, referencing these people that it is more obvious proof that they've been around forever. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, people from that time period obviously wouldn't have talked about this in a way that we would hope that they would talk about it. But I think that it it's absolutely true that being trans or being gender fluid is not new. That's a thing that has been part of the human experience since there have been human beings. And there is affirmation of that in this book. Just to kind of drill in your point, like, of course, they didn't treat it like we would want it to be treated now, even in the same way that like in the 90s, this translation doesn't treat it the way we would want it treated now. And that was like, this came out when I was eight years old in 96. Like, it's not that old. That's the weird thing about it is like, we're we're talking about the problematicness of it that is not that different between ancient Greece and Rome and the 90s. So anyways, Phlegon's Book of Marvels is part of a literary genre from ancient Greece and then into the Roman world called paradoxography that began in ancient Greece as far back as the 200s BC and later became popular in the Roman world. And these were books about the wondrous, the unexplained, and the supernatural. Sometimes these books would be in the form of compilations of different wonders and weird happenings only, and other times they would appear in the form of histories, travel writing, and ethnographies. So this made its way into writing that was not supposed to officially be paradoxography. For example, writers like Herodotus and Pliny the Elder were influenced by this. Yeah, well, some of the stuff Pliny writes, we talked about this with Elodie Harper, like, the great thing about Pliny the Elder is he's got this enthusiasm, and he's like, desperate to find out all these new things and learn stuff but like he gets so much stuff wrong but he's so excited and I kind of feel like he is like the more legitimate side but some of the stuff he comes up with is just as weird as what Phlegon does oh yeah this crops up this paradoxography crops up in Herodotus Pliny the Elder people who were writing things that were ostensibly supposed to be factual but not really did you guys know, by the way, that Cicero wrote one of these books of wonders, but it has not survived? Oh, and all of his boring ass speeches survive? God damn it, Cicero. What did Jen have to translate boring ass speeches from Latin to English? What would Jen have liked to have translated? The fucking Book of Marvels. So Phlegon's Book of Marvels is different from other ones in that it's about only marvels and wonders. It's not purporting to be a real history or like an ethnography or a travelogue. It's different from other books that were straight up just books of marvels as well, because it seems to be drawn mostly from earlier books of marvels rather than original work, according to Hansen. Yeah, well, it seems like, yeah, Fleegon just kind of copied everything down. Because as much as that's according to Hansen, it would have to be because he's like writing from the, you know, second century AD, but he's writing about things from the third, fourth century BC. So it's like, okay, yeah, like clearly this dude just found some stuff and copied it down and was like, oh, this is a thing that's definitely true. I read about it and somebody else mentioned it and it's been 300 years, but what are you talking about? Of course it's true. Phlegon is also different from other books of Marvels in that his book doesn't include any Marvels about the natural world, which were big areas of focus for other works in the genre. Instead, it's mainly concerned with human Marvels. The weirder, the more bizarre, the more sensationalized, the better, according to him and what he saw as those things. It's perhaps the most straight-up National Enquirer of any other book in its genre. So we are going to hit you today with three ghost stories specifically from the Book of Marvels, purported to be extremely true stories, according to Phlegon. The one I have, for sure true. Everything about it, got to be true. Definitely. No question. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. This is how ghosts work. This is how the world works. Look, kids, 
There's a lot of misogyny in my tale, so you know it's true. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to hit you with the ghost story of, how do I pronounce this word, Liv? Buplagos? Yeah, Buplagos. This is the story of Buplagos and Publius. So the story starts with a battle between the Roman army and the Seleucid general Antiochus at Thermopylae. And Thermopylae is the pass where we had the famous Battle of Thermopylae where like 500 people held the pass against us. 300! 300! What? How, did you, how do you get that number fuck? wrong? It's a whole George movie. Mother and all those photoshopped abs! <laughs> Animaeus gets kicked into a well! Are you guys saying it's not called 500? (laughs) (laughs) The best part about this is if you're being honest, it was like 2,000 people. It was just there's only 300 Spartans, so they're the only ones that seem to matter. But the idea that just throwing 500 in there is real priceless. I'm talking about the movie 500. Why is that weird? The blockbuster movie 500 and its sequel, 500 Rise of an Empire. So it's it's that Thermopylae. This is the same place, but it is in fact not that battle. It's a different battle. So anyway, so the Romans won, and Antiochus's forces threw down their weapons and they fled the battlefield. And after that, the Roman soldiers got busy burying their own dead while looting weapons, armor, and other booty from the opposing side's dead. Booty. It always sounds dirty. The Romans were looting the battlefield. They were also robbing the dead. They were, you know, just taking whatever they wanted. So picture this. They're on the battlefield. There's corpses everywhere. There's, like, weapons everywhere that have been thrown down in the midst of this battle. There's, like, a mist rising up from the sea, and everything is really smelly, and there's carrion birds everywhere picking out eyeballs and digging around in people's intestines. Right, exactly, like that. And in the midst of all that, the Roman soldiers are looting and cutting fingers off of hands to get at rings. And in the midst of all this, one of the corpses stands up. We know that he's dead because he's got 12 stab wounds on his body, but he stands up anyway. And this is a cavalry officer from Antiochus's army named Buplagus. So Buplagus rises to his feet and walks under his own power to the Roman camp ignoring the terrified stares of the Roman soldiers that he passes. And when he gets to the camp, he utters a prophecy. And I'm going to read you the prophecy. Quote, Stop despoiling an army gone to Hades, for already Zeus Cronides is angry, beholding your ill deeds, wrathful at the slaughter of an army and at your doings, and will send a bold-hearted tribe against your land that will put an end to your rule, and you will pay for what you wrought. So upon speaking this prophecy, Buplagos, immediately fell to the ground again, stone cold dead. So the Roman generals were shaken by this ghostly appearance and its terrible prophecy, and they convened to decide what to do about it. And they decided, okay, first off, they should immediately cremate Buplagos and give his ashes a proper burial so that he doesn't rise from the dead and pull this shit again. I mean, fair. Yeah, that's a good call, actually. After that, they purified the camp and performed a sacrifice to Zeus because clearly they'd pissed him off in some way. And third, they sent a delegation to Delphi to get a second opinion on this prophecy. And unfortunately, the oracle at Delphi had the same message for the Romans that Buplagos did. Quote, Restrain yourself, Romans, and let justice abide with you, lest Pallas stir up much greater Ares against you and make desolate your marketplaces, and you... Fool, for all your effort, lose much wealth before reaching your land. Dun, dun, dun. 
So that second opinion was a very clear message from the gods. Quit making war, you're pissing us all off up here. So the Romans immediately renounced all warlike intentions, packed up their battlefield camp, and went to Aetolia, where they made many sacrifices to the gods. But while they were making sacrifices, the Romans' top general, Publius, suddenly fell into a prophetic frenzy. He began to behave erratically, to rant and rave, and to spout wild prophecies and conspiracy theories in both poetry and prose. (laughs) News traveled fast around the camp that General Publius had suddenly fallen mad or had been gripped by divine possession, and ordinary soldiers flocked to his tent, both, you know, kind of worried about what was happening to their general and wanting to hear what he was saying and get all the dirty gossip. They were rubbernecking, just call it what it was. Oh, they were. They wanted to look at that train wreck. So the soldiers crowded the tent so tightly that some among them were crushed and died of suffocation. So Publius uttered a prophecy that Ares Athena, question mark, war, 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 (laughs) Athena, god of war, okay, war, war, was going to get back at the Romans for all the war making they'd done. For after they ravaged Asia and after they returned home to Italy, according to this prophecy, an army would gather from the land they just conquered and march toward them, gathering allies along the way from the mightiest hosts of Europe and Asia and everybody else that the Romans had beat up on previously. And then they would all invade the Romans' home turf, raise their cities in Italy to the ground, and enslave the populace in a final act of vengeance and wrath from Athena herself. It didn't end there, though. Let me tell you what. It gets even weirder. Publius then ran out of the tent, dressed only in his tunic. Was he even wearing pants? Unclear. Isn't a tunic just what they wore? Definitely not wearing pants. That's the message. I mean, if you're not wearing underpants, I don't like to talk to you. It's a very British definition of the word pants. Sorry, I've been here for 15 years. They got a hold on me. Well, you're talking to North Americans and we talk about pants and we're not talking about underwear. That's right. Thank you, Liv. Anyway, so Publius ran out of the tent with no pants on and continued to prophesy about how the Romans would win many victories on their march home, but that a huge army would gather from the lands that they just conquered and conquered them in turn. Talking in graphic terms about the devastation this vengeful army would wreak on the Roman homeland. To wit, quote, At that time, Romans, your harsh sufferings will all be fulfilled, for a broad host will come to destroy your entire land. Make desolate your marketplaces, waste your cities with fire, fill your rivers with blood, fill also Hades, and bring upon you slavery, piteous, hateful, and obscure. A wife will not welcome back her husband, returned from war, but Hades clad in black beneath the earth will hold him among the deceased, along with children robbed from their mothers, and a foreign Ares will impose slavery's day. Fingers crossed. Taking it to the dark place, Publius. So then, gets even weirder, Publius walked outside the walls of his own camp, climbed an oak tree, and announced to everyone gathered there that his fate was to be devoured by a huge red wolf immediately after giving the speech. He admonished the soldiers to believe in the truth of his prophecies and take his impending death by wolf as their proof. And after he was finished talking, a red wolf appeared on the outskirts of the crowd. Publius climbed down from the tree, laid down on the ground, and the wolf ripped open his body with its teeth and devoured him right there in front of the crowd, leaving only the head remaining. So after eating its fill, the wolf slunk off toward the mountains, leaving the crowd completely just like, what the fuck just happened? What (laughs) just happened? And after a moment, someone came forward to collect Publius's remains for burial, and suddenly the severed head spoke. Don't touch me, it admonished. 
<laughs> for it isn't right for those in whose hearts, quote, wild Athena has placed anger, unquote, to handle a sacred head. It's just not right. And the head then went on to spew more prophecies and QAnon conspiracies covering the same ground it had covered before. Do you know whose head also was detached and then spewed a lot of nonsense? The one coming up in my story? <laughs> Fucking Orpheus. It is a little bit Orpheus-like. This head is just spewing bullshit about how the Romans are going to get completely beat up from people from the nations of Europe and Asia that they had just beaten up on themselves. A giant army from the nations of Europe and Asia would sweep in and destroy Roman cities and enslave everybody, etc., etc. Giant downer. All the soldiers were now kind of put off. They were in a bad mood. Yeah, I mean, that'll take the wind out of your sails. They're just like, oh, wait, people don't like us colonizing them? Oh. Fuck. (laughs) Are we the baddies? No. Wait, maybe? No. Yes. So they built a temple to Apollo in the place where the head lay, and everyone got in their separate ships and went home to their separate lands. But it wasn't enough to stop the prophecy, because all of the severed head's horrible prophecies came to pass. And that is the end of my ghost story. It has so many similarities with mine, and I hadn't read it, and I'm just like, kind of like, wow, do all ghost stories include, like, talking severed heads and, like... Mine is different. <laughs> Mine is why you don't let a woman have sex with you if she's been dead for six months. (laughs) I mean, I think that's common sense, I would argue. Yeah. No, that seems reasonable. I'm just saying it's one of those things that should go without saying, but apparently in the ancient world it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, what the fuck was that that I just read you? I'm going to now give you the historical context of it. William Hansen calls this, quote, resistance literature, and I thought that was really interesting. So this story is set during the time of the Roman Seleucid War, which occurred between 192 and 188 BC. Most historians believe that the Antiochus in the story was Antiochus III, the Great, perhaps, a Hellenistic king and the sixth leader of the Seleucid Empire. His kingdom included vast regions of Syria and Western Asia, and he lived from around 241 to 87 BC. And he ruled the Seleucid Empire for 35 years. And he really did fight a battle with the Romans at Thermopylae, which he lost disastrously. So the background is that Antiochus found himself in conflict with Rome after allying with Rome's enemy, King Philip V of Macedon, not Alexander the Great's dad, different guy. He also gave shelter to Hannibal, the sworn enemy of Rome who crossed the Alps with all the elephants. And he beat up on some Roman allied towns in a war against the Ptolemies in Syria. He'd done a lot of things to piss off the Romans, and he was their enemy. Meanwhile, Greece had not been colonized by Rome yet, but that was only about, like, 40 to 50 years away. It happened in 146 BC. And during Antiochus's time, Rome had started throwing its weight around in Greece. It was getting increasingly aggressive and controlling. It was involving itself in Greek politics and wars. There was a lot of anti-Roman sentiment in various Greek city-states at the time, and the mood on the ground in Greece was pretty tense about the Romans. So, taking advantage of a climate of simmering anti-Roman resentment in Greece, Antiochus III raised an army and led it into Greece, planning to liberate it from the Romans and possibly take over himself. I don't know, it's just what I'm reading between the lines here. The Romans marched out to meet him, and the two armies clashed at the famous pass at Thermopylae, where the 500 met. The famous 500. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. The famous 500 Spartans. 700. You know. 
You know, there are 700 Thebans, you know, and nobody talks about those 700 Thebans, but whatever. And there's 200 ginger vampires, but, you know, <laughs> we're going there. <laughs> so Antiochus suffered a massive defeat, and then the Roman army followed his fleeing forces across the Aegean Sea into Asia Minor, where the war continued. Eventually, Antiochus III lost at the Battle of Magnesia, and he was forced to pay a fortune in war reparations to the Romans, not to mention losing a lot of territory. He was killed a year later by a hostile crowd while trying to exact tribute from priests at a temple of Baal in Persia. So, according to William Hansen, the prophecies that appear in Phlegon's ghost story probably predate the rest of the story, and the whole thing most likely originally dates from close to the time of the Roman Seleucid War, which again took place between 192 and 188 BC, so written maybe shortly after. And remember, Phlegon was mainly assembling stories from other older sources here. Originally, Hansen says that this story was probably written as a piece of, quote, resistance literature, an attempt to discourage further Roman aggression in Greek territory. Of course, by Phlegon's time, around 300 years or so later, a few centuries later, Greece had been a Roman province for several centuries, and these dire warnings to the Romans to quit throwing their weight around in Greek territory are kind of out of date for Phlegon's audience. Hansen says that Phlegon probably took this story from an older document in which it was intended to send a politically charged anti-Roman message to a Greek audience living under Roman oppression, and included it in his own book purely because of the supernatural events that take place, so it was repurposed as just a scary, sensationalized story. But still, this ghost story is also an interesting snapshot from a time shortly before the Romans conquered Greece, capturing the upheaval and violence of the time and giving us a glimpse of how the Greeks might have seen and experienced Roman aggression in their region. I don't know enough to know how much of this might have been like an undercover sort of rallying cry to Greek resistance or how much of it is just like, ah, severed head. This is a good story. Hadrian likes stories about like ghosts and prophecies. Let's throw him some bones because he gives me money and lets me see his cabinet of wonders, which in this case is not a euphemism, but feels like it should be. Hadrian was probably showing his cabinet of wonders to a lot of people back then. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps... You're just sick and tired of women being constantly 
misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Airwave Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. All right, so Liv, are you going to hit us with a ghost story? Yes, I am. Hit me with some flea on goodness. Flea on goodness. <laughs> I mean, there might honestly be like, you know, some deep meanings behind the story I have. But to me, it just sounds like a wild tale that has some problematic aspects. So I'm not diving too deep into the historicity or anything. We're just we're just telling this story. The story is called Polycratos. Hmm? Polycratos, the Itolark. <laughs> Which is like apparently like an Itolark, which I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it's like a nonsense title. Like it's not even a thing. William Hansen theorizes that it maybe it's similar to like a Beotark, I think is, was the word, but basically it was just like the leader of Beotia. And so he's thinking maybe it was just like the leader of Aetolia. Interesting. Regardless, it means he was the leader, but we'll get there. So Phlegon attributes this story to a man named Hieron of Alexandria, or maybe he was from Ephesus. We don't know. Two very different places, but whatever. And oh my gods, does this story have everything. Death. Birds? Did I write that intentionally? Bird? Birth? Bird? (laughs) Is it birds? Bird. Birth! (laughs) Thank you, Jen. (laughs) I love that I said it literally three times while looking at my phone and no one listened to me. (laughs) I know, because, but I was too busy repeating the word bird over and over again, which is my fault. Death, birth, really distasteful ancient <laughs> practices that are utterly horrifying by today's standards. Ghosts, disembodied talking baby heads. We've got it all. Everything I want in a ghost story. <laughs> it really is, right? It really is. Disembodied baby heads. Tell me more, please. So according to Phlegon, according to Hieron of Alexandria or maybe Ephesus, there was this guy in Atolia named Polycritos. He was elected to be the Aetolarch, whatever that means, for a three-year term. Apparently, he had some nobility in his heritage. And also, I guess this Aetolarch, like I said, was the leader of that region during whatever time period this, this happened in, because Phlegon and Hieron do not say when it happened or what was going on or why they were called that when it wasn't like a super accepted name. Honestly, The whole, all of this, what he was elected as is super unnecessary, but the point is he was political and that kind of carries on. So he gets elected to be this Aetolark and then he marries a nice woman, but she is Locrian. So he's from Aetolia and she's from Locris and like they're pretty close to each other. So I don't really know the big deal, but I think guess it's like a city state matter, you know. Listen, it's a Long Island, New Jersey matter. Don't fuck with us. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Locris and Aetolia, those troublemakers. Um, so what am I saying? Oh, yeah. So he gets elected to this role. He marries a nice woman. Oh, I talked about that already. She's Locrian. It's a whole thing. She obviously doesn't have a name because why would she? She is a woman. She is this man's wife. That's all that matters. Women don't have names. But then within four days of his marrying this nice woman, this nice Locrian woman, he dies. No news on how. He's just dead. And the woman is pregnant. 
So we start our story there. So eventually she gives birth, however long after her husband's death, I would imagine nine months or maybe, you know, four days fewer than nine months. But this woman gives birth to an intersex child. I think the suggestion was that they, she, but maybe it was just like people who were, you know, helping her give birth, like immediately run to the Agora, the marketplace with this intersex child troubled by it, which of course we dive right into like, you know, the problematic nature of all of this. And obviously there, you know, there's literally nothing wrong with being born intersex or being intersex in whatever way, but you know, we're dealing with an ancient culture and you know, they were problematic as hell. There's literally nothing wrong with this, but they make something wrong with it by just being, you know, what is the word I want? It's not xenophobic. Assholes. Just assholes. (laughs) Yeah. The only detail we just need to know is that there is something about them that means that they are brought into the Agora, the marketplace, and just like shown off and people start freaking out about what they should do. They think it's a portent, which there was a notation in there that suggests that like whoever first brought the baby to the marketplace also assumed it was a portent. And thus they start like freaking out and deciding like what the hell they're going to do with this baby. The Romans really were fucking nuts about science importance. And, and it, a lot of them did have to do with, like, babies born with various, you know, unusual features. So that really is showing you who the audience was. Yeah, that's true, because Greeks were not. And I do think this is Phlegon's, I mean, we say in later times your Christian monk is showing, this is Phlegon, your crazy Roman superstition is showing. Yeah, yeah, that sounds very, very accurate. And so, I mean, that's basically the point of it, right? Like, all of this is happening. They, they decide that maybe it's like an omen, that some kind of strife is going to come out between the Aetolians and the Locrians because of the whole mother-father situation. But it devolves to the point where their solution to this, this issue that they've fully made up in their heads is that the baby and the mother be removed from the city, taken to the countryside beyond the borders of the region, and burned. What?! Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, just straight set on fire. Both of them. Both of them. It seems like that's the solution. Just set them on fire. Wow. Well, this is really taking a dark turn. It's not ideal. It's not ideal. Suboptimal. I didn't see us going in this direction. Wow. Oh, wait. We're going in a couple more directions because as they're talking about this, just deciding whether to set this innocent woman and child on fire... Something um, uh, unexpected happens amongst them. The ghost of Polycritus, the woman's husband and the baby's father, he just appears. Just out of nowhere. I'm glad he finally decided to do something in this story. Exactly. Ghost is there to try to help out. He tries to calm them down. He asks them to be brave in the face of him, a ghost. (laughs) He foresees that they're going to be afraid of him because he's a ghost. And he tries to... Really just like chill them all out. They're flipping their shit. They're running around. They were already worried about this baby portent. And then now they're also worried because there's a fucking ghost. Shows up and talks about himself. Got it. (laughs) Well, exactly. And, you know, he's this politician, right? So he's like really trying to weigh things out. He's trying to make everyone chill, call upon their more reasonable sides. He's talking to them about how the feelings that he has towards his people of the region are the same as when he was alive. You know, he's looking out for them. He's got their best intentions at heart. He's calling on them to listen and not be, quote, frightened or repulsed by him, this ghost. (laughs) But he turns to the task at hand. You know, he's convincing them not to harm the baby. He wants uh, them to give him the baby instead. He's just like, you know, maybe don't burn the child. Please give the child to me. 
He's like, give the baby to the ghost dad. Ghost daddy. Exactly. Does he make any reference to his wife? Absolutely not. Of course not. She is not in this story for any split second longer than absolutely necessary. Basically, it's like, we're going to burn her. And then the ghost arrives and the ghost only cares about the child. And then so the woman is literally left out from this point on. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's good stuff. So yeah, so the ghost, like, he's very wordy. He has this whole speech about the fate of the region and why they should listen to him, why they should hand over this baby instead of harming him, that if they don't listen to him, they're going to really regret it. And basically, if they don't listen to him now, he won't be able to help them later. He's like, okay, give me the fucking baby. And all of this is suggesting that there's something really bad coming for the region, like a war or strife of some sort, which is what they assumed when they thought that the baby was a portent anyway, right? And the ghost is basically confirming their concerns that the baby is a portent of some kind or whether or not the baby is a portent or if there's just like bad shit coming regardless but the ghost is just like okay look if you give me the baby do not burn them alive give them to me and then that will solve the problem he's making it so easy exactly i got you if you just give me my own child then nothing bad will happen to you and nothing bad happens to my child and everything can be okay we cool Do you think they listen? No fucking way. (laughs) So some of the townspeople seem to think it's a good idea to like listen to this ghost to hand over the baby like he's asking. But no, the majority of them are not down. They think it's a pretty big decision, you know, to give a baby to a ghost and that they just shouldn't. They're like, well, let's just won't jump in, do anything. Like, give us some more time to think about whether we're going to give this baby to the ghost dad. The ghost dad is like, okay, let's think about which is worse, burning a baby alive or giving it to its parent who is here from the afterlife wanting to claim the child because this is a better option. Well, they didn't care about the baby, right? They were willing to burn it. So like, why the fuck are they worried now? See, here's the thing I wondered. Did the mother... um... The mother is not in the story, Jen. (laughs) Not in the story. Well, what I wonder is if the mother died and that's why they're in the situation they're in. No, because they threatened to burn her and the baby. She's alive enough to be burned. Okay, someone is drunk and missed this. No, no, there's just like nothing about the mother. That's what she just doesn't matter. She's not here. She doesn't fucking matter. She's going to be burned with the baby. No, and I mean, just wait, because like, this is not the craziest part of the story. So the, you know, the ghost dad asking for the baby doesn't win out. The people do not listen. And then so when this ghost dad realizes that they're not listening to him, like they're not going to give him, they're not going to just hand over this baby willingly, he is not being listened to. Like they are making a point of ignoring, you know, what he is telling them, how he is trying to help them. And so his solution as ghost dad to not being listened to, like they're not going to give over the baby willingly. So he grabs the baby right out of the townspeople's grasp however they're holding on to this poor baby and he grabs them he's like okay no this is happening baby's mine and he (laughs) he rips the baby apart limb from limb and eats them that's even darker than i thought this was gonna go (laughs) yeah but wait he so (laughs) he doesn't eat the whole baby because remember what i said at the beginning something about a disembodied baby head (laughs) i think that might be it so the ghost rips the baby oh, apart. No! Just no! The ghost rips the baby apart, eats the baby pretty exclusively, except 
for the head. Because like I've already said, but I've written into my script here, somehow this eating of the baby even is not the wildest part of this fucking story. The ghost eats the baby. The ghost dismembers the baby. And then he leaves the baby's head just lying on the ground. And the ghost disappears. He's done. That's all he needed. That's it. Ghost gone. You know what? I bet that baby head talks. So yeah, so the baby's head is just there lying on the ground. And the townspeople have only, you know, a few seconds, really, to like, look at what has just happened. (laughs) Taken what they've witnessed, like, okay, so that happened. Uh, Let's all regroup. Let's take a sec. You know, let's, let's really like take a breather. But they only have a split second. They only have time to just say like, okay, after all of this is the solution. Let's go to Delphi and figure out what's going on. But, you know, they only have a split second to think about this because before they can really do anything about the idea, the disembodied baby's head starts to speak. And, you know, I wasn't going to quote, but Jenny did. And so it seems fun. All right. So here is the speech by the disembodied baby's head. Consider a newborn, right? Like this literally happened moments after the baby was born. They are a newborn baby that has just been dismembered. This disembodied newborn baby's head speaks. Ahem. Oh, countless folk inhabiting a land famed in song. Do not go to the sanctuary of Phoebus, to the temple with its incense, for the hands you hold in the air are unclean from blood. The journey before your feet is defiled. Renounce the journey to the tripod and consider instead what I say, for I will recount the entire behest of the oracle. On this day, in the course of a year, death has been ordained for all, but by the will of Athena, the souls of Locrians and the Aetolians shall live mixed together. Nor will there be a respite from evil, not even briefly, for a bloody drizzle is poured on your heads. Night keeps everything hidden, and a dark sky has spread over it. At once, night causes a darkness to move over the entire earth. At home, all the bereaved move their limbs at the threshold. The woman will not leave off grieving, nor do the children leave off grieving for what they weep for in the halls as they cling to their dear parents. Such has been the wave that has crashed down upon everyone from above. And alas, alas, without cease, I bewail the terrible sufferings of my land and my most dread mother, whom death eventually carried away. Oh, okay. All the gods will render inglorious the birth of whatever. Did they set her on fire already? Okay, but wait. I told you that mother was fucking dead. (laughs) Okay, there's really, okay, here, there's really nothing more here except for expose. Wait. Come and expose my head to the rising dawn and do not hide it below within the dusky earth. As for yourselves, abandon the land and go to another land to the people of Athena if you choose to escape from death in accordance with fate. So yes, I guess the mother died, except we have no information on that. The text literally says, let's burn them. And then the ghost appears. And then suddenly now the mother's dead. No, look, I have very similar things with my story. And the reason I felt that way really strongly is I'm like, this mother would not let anything happen to that child. Oh, no, she certainly didn't have the control over anything. Of course not. But like not seeing them somewhere, like you could imagine she'd be screaming and fighting. And the fact that Ghost Dad comes back is like, somebody's got to look out for this child. I wouldn't say Ghost Dad is a paragon of fatherhood here. Well, I mean, Ghost Dad ate the baby, so he didn't really have the baby's best interests in heart. Ghost Dad's also dead. And in ancient Greece, there are two types of ghosts, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. They are the ghosts like Patroclus, who comes back to Achilles and is like, I miss you, hug me, and then disappears. And then 
They are the hungry dead who lust for your blood. The revenants. So which was Ghost Dad? Ghost Dad was the latter. He just wanted that sweet, sweet baby blood because he was a revenant. That's my theory on Ghost Dad. (laughs) We're such a dark fucking two podcasts. There's not a ton to say about this one besides like it really, I mean, I think that Jen's point about it being influenced by Roman obsession with portents and like curses and stuff is super accurate because I hadn't considered that, but it that part of it really doesn't feel very Greek because like, sure, the Oracle is very Greek, like wanting to go to the Oracle to solve your problems, but the whole idea of like immediately assuming all of these things are, are signs, are omens without a sign, because, you know, in, in Greek myth, it tends to be that if a sign is a sign from the god, it's much more obvious a sign for the god. Like, it's like an eagle carrying a snake. You know, it's like, okay, they're like really, I mean, that I feel like to any old person listening, that's not necessarily more obvious, but it really is. Could you explain what an eagle carrying a snake means? Yeah. So the eagle is the sign of Zeus. And the snake, I think, might have some kind of connections to something. But essentially, the idea being like, it's just Zeus, a, a sign from Zeus. So it appears primarily in the Iliad. A lot of times the thing with snakes is like snakes were considered creatures that moves between the worlds. So they were like both venomous and also could cure you from a lot of things. But because of the way they moved, they thought they moved between the underworld and the upper. Right. Which I think is like not really. I mean, the the, the idea in in the case of these is just more of like an eagle carrying away prey. But the eagle being specific to Zeus because... It appears in the Iliad, and it is essentially a sign of, like, all the bad that's going to come on the Greeks. Like, right before all the shit hits the fan, they see an eagle carrying a snake. So I think the big thing here with Phlegon is about who his audience is. And it's about really playing to people who believed in signs, importance, and ghosts. Like, the Romans we know were very superstitious. I'm not saying the ancient Greeks weren't, but I think he's using an older culture and older stories to sort of play into the superstition and sensationalism of his own times. Yeah, no, I agree. That sounds like it really checks out for sure, because not a lot is being said in this ghost story besides like ghosts are mean and sometimes they eat babies and then those disembodied babies heads can talk. That baby, by the way, can we just pause? That baby was very verbal to the point of long winded. Incredibly. Yeah, very verbal. And the suggestion there is too that not only was this baby like incredibly verbal, but that the baby essentially like the idea is that the baby gave the exact like prophecy that the oracle would have. And so there's like this other weird connection, which again, sounds like maybe more Roman than Greek because Greek myth has very set like people who prophesize, like not just anyone can do it, right? It's like Tiresias, it's this one guy in the Argonautica and it's the Oracle. I like that we just had two ghost stories that involved prophecies and severed heads. Oh yeah, and that's what I was feeling all throughout yours, Jenny. I was like, wait, there's a lot of similarities here. Jen. So shall I just dive into this? Yes, please. Guys, it is 2.10 a.m. I have had booze. That's all I'm going to say. I love a good ghost story and Fleegon's Book of Marvels does not disappoint. So this is the ghost story of Felinion. So the beginning of this story is lost. It starts mid-action. It's kind of like a letter that was written. We're going to get to that in a minute. So, Tritio, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, and Demostros 
for having a house guest over to visit. And his name was Machites. And he was from out of town and didn't know the family very well. Probably his parents, because he was a young, handsome guy, were friends with Chiritio and Demostros. This young guy needed a place to crash. He was like, I will take your sofa. So late one night, a nurse or old woman, which I do not approve of either of those terms, but I'm just giving you what I've got, who worked for Chiritio, happened to walk past the semi-open door of the guest room and saw Machites with a beautiful girl. Was the door open? Was the door open? Or did the nurse just sort of nudge it a little bit because Machites kind of looked like Chris Hemsworth and she just wanted to get a peek at him? Like, who doesn't? We do not know the answer to these questions, and we are deeply disappointed that Phlegon did not investigate this story that took place a long time before he was born. A bit more. What can I tell you, kids? So anyway, inside the guest room, The nurse just so happens to spy Machites with a beautiful girl. A beautiful girl that the nurse knew very, very well. A beautiful girl who was very much getting it on with Machites. And let's just say the two lovers were mutually enjoying themselves. It's very important that it was mutual. So the nurse blinked again and was like, I know that beautiful young girl. That beautiful young girl is the child I helped to raise. That girl is Belinion. And the nurse was like, scandal, outrage, fear. Because here's the thing. Belinion didn't live in her parents' home anymore. She was a newlywed and she was dead. She died about six months ago. Oh, scandal. Scandal. Married to someone else and dead. (laughs) Sexy ghosts. Sexy ghosts. So the nurse went immediately to Chiridio and was like, you have to come and see what's going down in the guest room. And Chiridio was like, come on, I've warned you about peering into the guest room before. This is not your personal porn hub. Please stop. But the nurse was like totally exasperated. And she was like, look. It's not about that. Well, okay, here's the thing. It's a little bit about that. But mostly, mostly, it's about your dead daughter who has come back to life. And she's in the guest room and she might be boning your guest. Oh, wait. So Felinion is also the daughter of Macrides or whatever his name is. The guy who owns the house. No, Macrides is the guest. Macades. Macades, thank you. She's the daughter of the house owner. Yes. Okay. So... Tridio was deeply upset. She called the nurse old and crazy and all sorts of other disparaging things, and she was just in general furious. But two hours later, she was still awake, and she was like, maybe she's not old and crazy. Maybe I should give this some thought. And she decided to go with the nurse and look in on her guest and see what the fuck was going on in that room. So what did she see? Well, there was definitely a girl in that room sleeping tangled in McKady's arms. And if you squinted, she kind of looked like her daughter, but she wasn't sure. And also she wasn't sure she ever wanted to see her daughter in that position. So Tridia was like, maybe I shouldn't be seeing this moment. Like maybe this is inappropriate nurse. And she decided to come back later in the morning and ask McKady's and this girl, what the fuck was going on in her guest room? But somehow... When the sun rose, the girl had managed to slip out of the house unseen. And she was like, how did that happen? 
doesn't want to stick around for the awkward conversation with the mom in the morning. Giant surprise. With her own mother about why she's having sex with this guest, who is apparently, like, really hot. Because, like, Legon makes a few points of saying he is young and fit and he's up for it. He's down to show his cabinet of curiosities to all interested comers. Sex. Damn straight. So here's what happens in the morning. Tridio started questioning Makedes, and she was like, please, just start at the very fucking beginning of this saga. Tell me everything. I don't really, like, want to know all the details, but just tell me the truth and just don't spare me anything. And so Makedes was like, Jesus fucking Christ, why? He was totally freaked out. He was like, I am a young guy. I did some things I don't ever want to admit to. Like, it was fun. You're her mom or you're just an older matron. I don't want to tell you this. I've defiled the guest room of my parents' friends. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Many times over. Exactly. I don't really know you. You're a friend of my mom and dad. And you're going to tell my mom and dad and it's all going to go back and it's going to be awful. So Mikides, needless to say, was like really freaked out. And Tridio was super stressed. Mikides was like, I don't want to get this like nice girl in trouble because she's totally been like coming to visit me and I don't want that to stop. You know, he really liked her. Question, does he know at this point that Felinion is Teridios's daughter? Not yet. Okay, so he doesn't know anything about her, basically. No, he doesn't. Because somehow he's good enough friends with the family that like they will put him up. But he's not good enough friends to know a girl who would be around his same age. So he's, he's not good enough friends to know that their daughter just died. Exactly. Or that she was around the same age as him or anything relating to her at all. So he starts to explain how he and this girl had this totally mutual, very consensual affair that started the first night he arrived. And, you know, he makes a really big point of saying how great her desire was for him. And remember, he's telling the story to the mother of this girl. And he tells Chirito that the girl came to him without her parents' knowledge or their consent. And then he takes out his coffer and shows Chirito and the nurse, because the nurse is like still there. She's like, I want the tea. She's not missing out on this (laughs) gossip. No. (laughs) No way. She's like, I have waited my life for this tea. Give me supernatural tea. So he takes out his coffer and he shows Chiridio and the nurse the love tokens this girl has given him. And she's given him a gold ring and her breast band, which is literally the band or ribbon that she wound around her boobs. Is it like a strophium? Essentially. He has like her wedding ring and her bra. So she also told him that her name was Felinian. And this is when Chirito loses her shit. She begins tearing at her clothes, beating at her breasts, weeping uncontrollably, and just really having an epic, but to me, totally understandable meltdown. Makaitis is like, hey, look, I don't know how to fix this for you, but... I just, I like the, sorry, just like, I don't know how to fix this for you. Like, I, wanna, I just want to know what the options could have been. Like, okay, I just, so your daughter's dead and I've been fucking her and it's really good and like, I'd like to keep going, but also I'm being told she's dead. What can I do? But she super (laughs) wants me. She gave me a gold ring and her bra. And also like, I haven't told you this yet, but somehow you know this, but I have given her my iron ring, 
which in Roman culture, a lot of men wore iron rings. And sometimes, depending on the class status, that might be an engagement ring. And he also gave her a gold chalice that she was drinking out of because that was the guest chalice. Anyway, so Machaides is like, look, when your daughter arrives, I'm going to let you come in and say hello. And maybe, you know, we'll find out why your dead daughter is fucking me at night. And just sort this whole shit out. But not sorted out so much that we're not fucking anymore. Because look, I don't want to like be crude, but this is a thing we're both into. Yeah, it's really going well for both of them. Right? It's consensual. It's mutual. Right. Pretty rare in the ancient world. Exactly. Right? So that night, Philinian arrived at the appointed hour when she always arrives. And she sat down on the bed with the kites and she had some wine. Because that girl is totally a ghost girl after my own heart. She's like, if I'm coming back, I'm coming back for the good Philinian. And she ate some food. And they chatted and Mikeides was like super curious to find out who this girl was because she seemed super real. Like he had touched that flesh and she was real. She was flesh and blood. There was no fucking possible way she was a ghost. Like he had smashed that. So his thoughts were like, maybe some grave robbers had like stolen the dead girl's ring and her clothes and then sold it to like this other like living guy who is this living girl's father. And that's how she came to be wearing the dead girl's ring and her clothes. Like that seems sensible, right? Much more sensible than her being a ghost. Like that is an explanation that solved everything. So once Mikaides had chatted with the girl for what he felt like was long enough and listen, maybe they smashed again. He sent his enslaved peoples to go and fetch Chiritio and her husband, Demostros. Once Chiritio arrived, the shit went down. And here is what Phlegon tells us. Quote, when they first saw her, they were speechless and panic stricken by the amazing sight. But after they cried aloud and embraced their daughter, then Philinian said to them, Mother and father, how unfairly you have grudged my being with the guest for three days in my father's house since I have caused no one any pain for this reason, on account of your meddling, you shall grieve all over again, and I shall return to the place appointed for me. For it was not without divine will that I came here. And immediately upon speaking these words, she was dead, and her body lay stretched visibly on the bed. Her father and mother threw themselves upon her, and there was much confusion and wailing in the house because of the calamity. The misfortune was unbearable and the sight incredible. So that's what Phlegon tells us. And he tells us that soon everyone in the city knew what had happened. And they were like, oh, shit, we need to handle this. Because here's the thing, Jenny and Liv. In my opinion, that fucking city knew they had a vampire on the loose and not a ghost. They had a revenant. So in the morning, they went to the girl's tomb. And they crack that sucker open. And this is what they found. And again, this is a quote from Fliegen. Quote, After the particulars had been explained, it was decided that we should first go to the tomb, open it, and see whether the body lay upon its bier, or whether we would find the place empty. A half year had not yet passed since the death of the girl. When we opened the chamber into which all deceased members of the family were placed, we saw bodies lying on byres or bones in the case of those who had died long ago. But on the byre onto which 
Felinian had been placed, we found only the iron ring that belonged to the guest and the gilded wine cup, objects she had obtained from Achides on that first day. Ooh, spooky! Dun, dun, dun! Exactly! So after this shocking sight, the entire town goes to Chiritio and Demostros' house to see if the body of the dead girl was there. Like, she's not here, maybe she's there. And when they find her body on the bed, they are terrified. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not ideal. I know, I would be scared. So they call an assembly to find out how to fix this problem of a ghost, or what I'm calling a vampire, which we'll get to in a minute, girl. So this is a quote again from Fleegon. Quote, There was considerable confusion in the assembly, and almost no one was able to form a judgment on the events. First to send up was Hylos who was considered to be not only the best seer among us, but also a fine augurer. In general, he has shown remarkable perception in his craft. He said we should burn the girl outside the boundaries of the city, since nothing would be gained by burying her in the ground within its boundaries, and perform a sacrifice to Hermes Catonius and the Eumenides. Then he prescribed that everyone purify himself completely, cleanse the temples, and perform all the customary rites to the underworld gods. He spoke to me in private about the king and the events, telling me to sacrifice to Hermes, Zeus, Xenios, and Ares, and to perform these rites with care. When he had made this known to us, he undertook to do what he had prescribed. Machaides, the guest whom the ghost had visited, became despondent and killed himself. I gotta say, sorry, quick, a lot of taking people outside of the city limits and burning them. There are two types of ghosts in ancient Greece. There are the ghosts like we see in the Iliad, like Patroclus, who comes to Achilles and he's very ephemeral and spectral and you can't embrace him, but he's there to sort of like comfort you and say things and give you the future. And then there's the other ghost. The revenant ghost. The ghost that is always hungry for blood and for a way to prolong their life. So let's talk about this story for a moment in the context of one of my favorite topics that we've ever covered, ancient Greek vampires. Because the first thing I thought when I read this story was motherfucking vampire. Vampires rear their ugly heads again. Once again, those fucking vampires. So the epictheory.com, which I would love to give money to, like, why do you not ask me for money like Wikipedia does? You deserve it. Theory.com tells us, quote, the story of Philinian was set in the 4th century BC Macedonia. The king referred to by Phlegon, which we missed but was actually at the beginning of the letter, is Philip of Macedon. Phlegon did not invent this story for Procleus and mentions other older sources for the tale. Philinian's appearance in the story appears relatively benign, but the reaction of the townsfolk suggests something more sinister. Indeed, her rendezvous with the young man recalls visitations of the ghostly vampiric Lamiae. Presumably, if Philinian's affair had continued, she would have drained his blood. The ancient Greeks believed that ghosts crave blood. The story is therefore regarded as one of the earliest vampire myths, especially when read in conjunction with the tale of the Lamia of Corinth. In the early Christian era, the Greeks coined the term Vrikolakis to describe these vampiric ghosts. So Jenny, do you remember this? 
This is all very familiar to me, yes. <laughs> it's so familiar. Liv, where does that word come from? I mean, I'll, I, I googled it because I was confused. I want to come in here and actually just question how it could be early Christian era because there's a lot of questionable natures about like for one it's a Slavic term I don't know when that connection could have been made but also just the use of like an English or Latin V versus the Greek B like beta which in modern Greek is pronounced like a V beta but in ancient Greek was a B. It, it's interesting because I looked at the word in Greek and in modern Greek, you know, it has veta. So it would sound like that. But now I'm like going into my like very minimal knowledge of ancient Greek. But Cune Greek still used like a B kind of sound, B sound for, for veta. So anyway, I'll, that's all to say, like, I question the historicity of it being early Christian era, but only because of like really base level nonsense knowledge that I have, because it doesn't sound Greek at all. Well, I think the interesting thing about um, it being possibly Slavic, the word Vrikolakas, is that when we were looking at our vampire myths for that episode, we were finding a lot of myths that were still um, kind of, you know, active today, kind of as folklore in Greece, but that were also quite similar in areas of Eastern Europe. So it doesn't surprise me that there was a lot of exchange of that, and that maybe these tales kind of got mixed up with folk tales in Eastern Europe and then kind of came back to Greece and everything kind of got mixed around with all the cultural exchange in that area, especially when it became like the Byzantine Empire. That's what makes me think that it would be like a Byzantine word versus versus early Christian. Because early Christians, like, I mean, maybe I'm just complete. Again, I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. I like classical Greece. I don't know why I try to pretend like I know anything after Christ was born. Fuck that, dude. I also think that's got to do with the cultural exchange. And I think it has to do with the reality of these tales being codified. And probably an early Christian person writing it down and being like, this is the story from this area and maybe not having the same understanding that we would have. They probably did a bit of histography like we would expect someone like Pliny the Elder to do and be like, oh, yeah, this V one. That is totally the ones from this area. But I can really see the vampire connections, Jen, with the fact that like, you know, she keeps returning. She had to be invited. I assume she had to be invited in. Was that part of it? My question is immediately I saw this and this is like, this is someone who had to be invited in. This is someone who came and knocked at that window. And that guy let them in because what we know about particularly this type of vampire is they appear as the recently deceased. There may be like a demon or whatever that's possessed the recently deceased and they are full of life and gorgeous and really beautiful. And they appear to you and they whisper your name. They say, Jenny Williamson, Liv Albert. And I think, Jen, like you can kind of read between the lines here, you know, obviously... McKaytees was clearly very into this. So if this girl appeared at his window and knocked, he would have absolutely let her in. Like, he doesn't even, like, Fleegon doesn't have to say it. Like, it's kind of between the lines there. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, he very barely says it. And the, the translator does a good job in his commentary being like, this is totally consensual. He let her in. They're having this great time. He's being seduced. They're really enjoying themselves. And... Again, the particular type of vampire that I think it is, if it's not the Lamia, which we'll get to in a little bit, and I don't think it is, is the Vrykalaka, because as I called them in our Ancient Vampires episode, they're the suck and fuck vampires. They are the type of vampires that essentially steal your blood or life force while they are seducing you. And at the end of that period, you are nothing but a, a husk. Wasn't there a whole thing about all the horny Vrykolakas on Tinder? Absolutely. There were so many horny Vrykolakas on Tinder in ancient Greece, and they were very, um, they were very seductive. And usually 
So usually they would come back to their own home after they died and they would mostly target spouses and stuff like that because they were grieving and it would be easy to be let into a house, right? Because you'd be like, right, oh my God, that's my husband's voice. I miss him so much. Come on in and visit me. And before they know it, they are sucked dry. And what a lot of ancient vampire mythology is, which we covered in our episode, which I think we're going to replay this season, is about diseases. It's about how diseases went from family to family and community to community. And that's kind of what you're seeing here. What you see at the end of this story is Machaides, who was just this guest, he falls in love with this vampire woman kills himself he cannot take being without his lover and that is very much a footnote in this story which I find really interesting because in stories about like Mbuzas and Lamias what we get is the man who they seduce becomes so enamored so addicted to their love that they cannot live without them that's the power they have over them and we've spent most of this season sort of subverting this trope of women not having power in these ancient cultures except through their own sexual agency. And what we see from Felinion is that she has power as a vampire. She comes back and she has picked her mark and she knows what she needs to do in order to keep her life, in order to be able to have more time on this earth. And if it means that Machaides has to go, well, she had one more day, mom and dad. Why did you have to bust in on this? God. Literal demonization of single women or, you know, she she had been married, but like literal demonization of women with sexual agency who took the lead role in choosing who to have sex with as opposed to letting that just be dictated by their family and who like selected men and went after them. And there was a lot of anxiety around that in the ancient vampire myths that we were finding. And that's here too. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of what we saw when we did our vampires episode was about, in particular, women who had sexual agency. Or to just like enjoy herself though, right? Like maybe it was just more to, because she didn't have that good, those good times, like she's coming back to get hers, right? (laughs) She wants to come back and get hers and also drink some blood and just, you know, be out on the town like she didn't get to do in life. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and again, the translator tells us, which we don't get in the actual bit of the translation that lives from Phlegon, that Philonian had had a marriage. She'd been married for not very long. It was not a happy marriage. Again, these are the translator's notes. They're not what we get from this story. So maybe she comes back to this world to sort of prey on men, this particularly young men. I kind of feel like she's like, it's either you or me. And honestly, like, I can tell you, it's gonna be me. Vampiric as fuck. Absolutely. It's all about anxiety over death, anxiety over plague, anxiety over women's sexuality. Somehow we have to toss that in there. Like, always, always. If a woman has sexual agency, she is a vampire or a ginger or a ginger vampire or a any combination. This has been such a great time. I'm so glad that you came on, Liv. Thank you. This is so much fun all the time. Where can people find you? Oh, you can find me everywhere. You know, let's talk about myths, baby. That's just two Palomas in. I'm not even drunk. Um, Yeah, my podcast is available everywhere. Greek myths. I too partake in spooky season. I have nothing planned at this point and likely won't have a ton of spooky episodes, but there'll be something, something to come out. I do love spooky season. You'll get into that Bride of Corinth time. We'll get slightly spooky. See you guys next week. (laughs) 